0: Amen. Well done, Nate. You're done. He's done with violin after that. That was his coup de gras. That was his <laughs> present to mommy on Mother's Day. Uh, he was longing to get out of violin for a long time, and we made him tell Miss Sarah, we said, when you're done violin, playing violin, you've got to tell Miss Sarah. And it took him four months to get the courage to tell Miss Sarah that he wasn't going to take it anymore. She's a wonderful teacher, and uh, He's the product of it. All right, I have a couple of things to go through before we get into the preaching. You can take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs 31, but we haven't given gifts to mothers in many a moon around here, and so it was thought of and brought up in the last couple, actually days, weeks, uh, about uh, giving gifts to mothers, and the reason we don't is because it's impossible to find winners, and what I mean is, on Mother's Day, everybody's a winner. Every mom is a winner, but to find and identify. So here's the first question, and that some of these are going to take some work. So ladies, get your notes out, flip it over, and on the back, you're going to have to write these out. Here's the first question, and here's the first winner that we need. The mother with the most letters in their combined children's names. If you have eight kids and you named them with three-letter names, that's your fault. If your kid's name is Melchizedek Bartholomew Johnson, you might be a winner. So start counting your kids' names, all of those letters. And when we get to that answer and we come back to that in just a few moments, I want you to have the answer for you. We'll do it at the very end of the service this morning. But I want you to count. And I don't want you to count while I'm preaching, but I'm giving you a head start right now. You can see in the preacher talk, I'm, I'm kind of dragging this point out right here. So count the letters of your kids' names. Joni, you should be started already. You, you, oh, you got them already? Oh, man, she's on it. I don't, you, like that quick, you knew? That's amazing. Hallelujah. All right? Here's the second question. And I want you to think this one through, mothers. I want you to write it down. It's not a question of how many children you have, but how, mi- or how far away or the combined or cumulative total of miles away from you this morning at this very hour are all of your children. Stop and think that one through. If your kid's a missionary and they're in Botswana, you've got to figure that out. You might be pulling your phone out real quick. and How far away is that city from me? Now this is a good reason for your kids to say, Mom, it's a good thing I don't live close to you. No mother ever heard that and agreed with it, but the point is, I want you to add it up. So if you've got three kids, and one lives in Russia, and the other one lives in Australia, and one lives in Sadieville, then your mileage is probably going to win. I don't think my mom is going to win. She lives seven miles away from me, but she does have 500 miles to where her daughter lives in Northern Virginia, so I know my mom's is around 507 to 550 miles in that range. All right, here's the third question. This is going to be easy at the end when we come back to it. Who in here has been a mother the longest? So that means who's your oldest child, and if we get down to it, we are literally going to get down to it. I hope we don't, but it's happened in here before. That's why I don't ask these questions. At the end of the service today, we're going to ask this question. If it's on the same day, then we're going to ask what time of day. So you better know that. I mean, again, start thinking, mothers, like if your kid is 60, you have to think back to when they were born and what day, day and hour in the day they were born. We, we have tiebreakers built into all of these. If we literally have a, two sets of mothers or two mothers in here who have kids born on the same day, at the same hour, same minute, same second, I will tell Pam to go out and get another gift for you. I don't think we will have that problem, but that's how detail we'll get. Now, that's at the end. For now, can I have all mothers in here stand for me? If you're a mother, would you stand? Hallelujah. How wonderful it is. God's grace to the human race is a woman. We're going to study that this morning. But on top of that grace in womanhood that you all are is motherhood. It is the ultimate end of a woman. It is the quintessential element of your particular sex within the human race. And so to mothers, I say, thank you. I could say the little trite saying, where would we all be without our mothers? And the answer is not here. <laughs> and so thank you. In an age and in a world where motherhood is chided and disregarded and treated lightly and poorly, thank you for the godly mothers and at least being here with us if you're not a godly mother this morning. Let's have a word of prayer, then we'll jump right into the preaching. Father, I thank you for the ladies who are here present who represent motherhood. Father, each one of them that's standing can reflect and are probably doing so on a day like this of those years of raising their children. Some their children have grandchildren, perhaps even great grandchildren. Other mothers who are standing here are mothers waiting. Those, so many in our church this year that are expectant mothers. Motherhood truly is a gift. It is a task. It is a chore. There are moments and times of great difficulty, but it is a gift. Children are an heritage of the Lord. These women represent stewards of that heritage. I thank you for each one in our midst today. May your hand of blessing be upon them. May their families rejoice and magnify their position today, in that of motherhood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This morning I want to preach a message on Mother's Day which seems like it should never have had to be preached ever in the history of mankind, but here it is. What is a woman? We hear that a lot today, don't we? You turn on the television and you find Supreme Court justices struggling to answer what a woman is. And it baffles the mind. It's truly troublesome. We've lost our minds as a culture in America and we now call mothers birthing parents. Literally on official gov- federal government statutory law, we call mothers Birthing parents. I can tell you I've never called my mother my birthing parent. I will never call her my birthing parent. One, it conjures up icky thoughts in my mind. But two, she's my mom. She's not my birthing parent. If we lined up all of the kids of the church and moms of the junior church, super church hour, you're welcome. Your kids are with you this morning. It was at pastor's discretion. If we lined those kids up this morning from ages six to eight on the platform and had them go through and tell us what is a woman, we would get funny answers. We'd probably get some pretty hilarious answers. But you know what? We would get 100% consistent answers of defining what a woman is because a child knows. This Mother's Day, I'd like to look at the designer's notes or God's word to see if we can settle what a woman is. Read with me here in Proverbs 31 of the quintessential woman. The woman that every woman should strive to be. Uh, One has said the reason Solomon didn't write Proverbs 32 about the virtuous man is because he wrote so glowingly about the virtuous woman. Proverbs 31 and verse 10, the Bible begins, Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ships. She bringeth her food from afar. My wife came home from Costco this week, and I was preparing this message, and I realized that's exactly what the verses say. When she comes in with armloads of groceries, and the boys all run out and help with the groceries, bringing them in, that's what that verse is talking about. She comes like a merchant from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household or provision and a portion to her maidens she considereth a field and buyeth it with the fruit of her hands she planteth the vineyard she girdeth her loins with strength and strengthening strengtheneth her arms or she gets stronger or prepares herself she perceiveth that her merchandise is good her candle goeth not out by night she layeth her hands to the spindle and her hands hold the distaff she stretcheth out her hand to the poor ye she reacheth forth her hands to the deity. She is not afraid of the snow for her household. In other words, bad weather, bad temperament, bad climate does not bother her because she's prepared for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. In other words, she puts on beautiful clothing. She dresses herself in a right way. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen and selleth it and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing. And she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom. In her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed. Her husband also and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously. Here is that excellent woman, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall Be praised. A woman is the only one who who can become, according to the word of God, a wife. And if God sees fit to bless in His heritage, He makes her into a mother. The creator himself establishes what a woman is. He also has established what a man is. It is neither outlandish or barbaric, nor is it draconian to hold the view that a woman is uniquely and specifically one of two and exclusively two sexes that God created. Quite the opposite. To believe such a truth is actually quite liberating and instructive. It helps us to learn to stop listening to the world's babblings and foolishness on such a subject. It is literally the psychosis of our modern age that we even have to debate such a word. Recently, on the way to church, my oldest, Drew and I, were driving early for choir practice and a news story came on and the news anchor in the process of talking said, a biological female. I immediately reached up and turned the radio off. I didn't care what came after that. Whatever the news story was, immaterial I looked at my son and realized it was a good opportunity as a dad and as a husband and as a man to explain a life lesson to him. I told him in that moment, when you begin to use phrases like biological male and biological female, you have lost the argument. They are now defining the term. And far too many of us as Christians walk around this world, even in our workplace, and we use the phrase, well, it's a biological female. Can I tell you something? I have a biological dog. (laughs) He's always been a dog. When his mama beagle birthed him, he was a dog. I've never had to call Sam, my dog, a biological dog. Why? Because he's a dog. I've never had to call myself a biological male because I'm a man. I've never called my wife or my mother or my sister a biological female. When we start using their terms, we are losing the argument. The Word of God is clear what a woman is. It amazes me how poorly Christians are in the preparedness to make simple statements of fact and logic. Well, I don't want to offend anybody. Well, you're offending me by saying biological female. Well, we don't care about your feelings. Yes, I get that. But the truth of the matter is, it's just a man and a woman. That's called all God ever made. We're going to define what a woman is and follow it through the ultimate expression of womanhood this morning in the message, and that is being a mother, not a birthing parent, but a mother. Please note, I did not say it is the only expression of womanhood, but motherhood is the ultimate expression of motherhood. So in our notes, we must move quickly today. A woman first is a created being. The issues that are foisted upon us today are the direct result of an evolutionary worldview. If everything evolves, then my sex, or as they've constructed the word gender, can as well. You cannot hold an evolutionary worldview and believe that sex cannot change. You must hold a creation worldview to say that sex is binary, that there is man and woman and nothing in between, no shades of gray, no fluidity. It is logically inconsistent within the worldview of evolution, that of chaos and change, to say that there is a binary sex. That's why it has become the rage, because we have taught generations of children not a creation worldview, but an evolutionary worldview. Satanic evolution, formed most recently by Charles Darwin, tries to teach us that nothing is settled. Everything is in a state of change. So the modern minds have said, so is sex. If nothing is consistent, then neither is the role of a man and the role of a woman, or the identity of a man, or the identity of what a woman is. Of course, they make up the word gender because gender is malleable while sex is not. God declares that he created a woman first, letter A, as an equal sex. Here's what he says in Genesis 1 and verse 27, in the broad explanation of how he created, in the general revelation of how he created all things in the six days of creation. Here's what he says of day six, and particularly of the two sexes. He says this in Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. God, in the general statement of creation, makes no grand statement of difference between the sexes. That is true. He just matter-of-factly states, I made two. One boy, one girl. One male, one female. He states that both are important and that both have a purpose. From the designer, then, creation functions optimally when both male and females fulfill their purpose as God designed. It was true in the animal kingdom. After their kind they created, the Bible says. And so God declared it for the humankind as well. Please understand, I'm not saying that a man and a woman are equal in rational processing. Neither am I saying that they are equal in physical strength. I'm not suggesting that we exercise our emotions in equal fashions. I'm simply saying that in our DNA structure, there is an equal number of chromosomes in both sexes and that those DNA strands are constructed equally, but differently. Some with an XX and others with an XY. There's no amount of drugs that you can take that will change the. Those chromosomes, not amount. You can take drugs until they kill you; it will not change what your chromosomes say you are. You are wholly one or wholly the other. There are but two equally viable structures within the human race. No amount of lying can change that. And I would suggest, as a pastor, it's time we just trust the science. God did not make two genders, he made two sexes. The word genders etymology can be traced back through archaic French to the original Latin. There it is the word genus. It's where we get the idea of birthing or begetting. The original Latin is for race, family, or kind. In other words, God made all living creatures, including mankind, of two unique equal sexes but of unique genus. We are man, homeo sapien, different than the rest of the animal kingdom. That is, if you want to get really technical on words, our gender. There is no fluidity in that. We are either male or female within the genus of mankind. In my notes here, the dog, the cat, the monkey, the cow, the whale, all the way up to the human are each their own genus. Would any of you want to be a cow? We have some sick, crazy people that think they are these things, but it's time we call them that. Not callously, not angrily, not even dismissively, but declaratively, that is sick. If you as a human want to be a rat, Or a cow. Or a whale. You see, when we say it like this, it makes a lot of sense. I I get it, Pastor. You know, Kyle, you're right. And then you go out to work and you go, yeah, but maybe there are a lot of genders. Well, I mean, within the word use, genus, a generation, the original etymology of the word. There's a lot of genuses walking around this planet. But in mankind, there's only two sexes. It's how God designed it. You can cosmetically corrupt any part of the human anatomy, but you cannot change what they are. You are born with an X and an X, or you are born with an X and a Y, just as the Creator intended. Letter B, a woman is created as an equal sex, but with a unique significance. This is where many within fundamentalism and many within Christianity go awry, because we miss place, and think that there is more importance than in one sex over the other. And there isn't in God's mind. Both are equally significant. Genesis chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8 say this, "...and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden, eastward in Eden, there he put the man whom he formed." Genesis 2 is a day 6 explanation. The general story of God's creative acts are found in Genesis chapter 1. The specific story of God's creative purpose is what we would find in Genesis chapter 2. God formed man of the substance of the earth, we're told. Then if you keep reading down in chapter 2 and verse 15, you pick up and the Bible says this, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. We'll talk more about that particular passage on Father's Day. Come back if you want the other part of this. So we can find out what a man is. Some of the ladies in here think, yeah, I'd like to hear that. (laughs) And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good. This is the first time in all of God's creative work that God said of his creation, something wasn't good. What was not good that man should be alone? So what did God decide? I will make and help meet for him. God's declaration thats that it is not good for man to be alone. This is not God forgetting to make something. He didn't absent-mindedly say this. Rather, within the word of God and within specific creation's detail of mankind's creation, he's telling us the significance of both of the roles, both of the, the sexes. We understand God's rationale then on why he would create the woman in both the fashion and with the function that he, the creator, did. The woman was created to help meet the deficiencies of man. There was something God saw in man and said, That isn't good. I need to provide a helpmeet for him. The primary deficiencies were in all three parts of man. His physical, emotional, and spiritual state. Eve, or woman, is the completer of Adam or man in the mind of God. She was his completer, not his competitor. We'll see where that comes in in just a few moments in Genesis chapter 3. Certainly the woman that we read of in Proverbs 31 does not seem to be the competitor of her husband. She seems to be the one that takes care of everything the husband himself cannot do. She is the completer of the husband. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20, the Bible continues and tells us this. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmate for him. Now we just read a few verses earlier in Genesis 2 that God noted that he would need to make a helpmeet. Here Adam is realizing his own deficiency. Adam is naming Mr and Mrs Cow and Mr and Mrs Cat and Mr and Mrs Dog and in the process of giving them their official names and titles, he himself is noticing there's a Mr and a Mrs and a Mr and a Mrs and a Mr and a Mrs and then he turns around a Mr and a he misses the missus. She's not there. We continue to read. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took a, one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called. And this is what I love old preachers say. When Adam saw her, he said, whoa, man. I don't know if that's what he said or not. (laughs) Can I tell you, ladies, there was no comparison. (laughs) She didn't have to worry about what the Internet said or what the television showed or what the magazine said. She was just complete being the completer of the one that God had made her for. Because she was taken out of man, therefore shall a man leave. This is Adam speaking, by the way. Jesus later confirms what Adam's speaking is of God. It's the word of God, meaning it's settled. He says, though, Adam says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. His what? Did Adam have a father and a mother? Oh, I'd never thought about that before. Kyle. Well, now think about it. No, he didn't. But he recognized this sex is different than my sex. And there's significance in that. He understood immediately the importance of it and shall cleave unto his wife, and they, are, they shall be one flesh. Was there any other person that Adam could have cleaved to? I don't even know if that's good grammar. No. He could only cleave to her, yet he makes a definitive statement about what those roles would be with each other. Woman comes out of man's side as a support, as a helper. She's neither from his feet. As a servant or from his head as a sovereign, she is essential to Adam being complete. And Adam is essential to her for her being complete. Adam did not struggle to figure out that Eve was different. He could manifestly see she was different. In his own words, he declares that a man would leave his father and mother for the woman God had made for them. How could Adam make that statement of leaving father and mother? He could make it instinctively, he could make it intuitively, and he could make it observationally. He understood that's how each was built for each other. A man, I used to hear this, uh, the singles pastor in Virginia that I took over for when I was serving there, he used to teach a lesson to the singles. He said, a man is a whole cookie, and a woman is a whole cookie, and when a man and a woman become husband and wife, they become an Oreo cookie. Because everything in the middle is that good, creamy, gooey stuff. I thought, man, that's a good way to look at it. You take that Oreo part, it's still technically a cookie. And the other side is a cookie, but marriage is that stuff in the middle. Once we understand that a woman is a created being of equal sex with unique significance, then we must answer, how do we get to where we are today? The answer is found, number two, a woman is a corrupted being. Happy Mother's Day. Every woman is a sinner. Don't worry, ladies. I'll make the same statement on Father's Day. And if I forget, I'll let you make it for me. Some of you are just realizing, hey, Kyle, you just called my mom a sinner. Hey, listen, can I tell you something? My mom's sitting over here. I called her a sinner too. And I'm making dinner for her today. Everyone... Man or woman, boy or girl in here this morning is a sinner. Eve sinned, which corrupted God's original design. Genesis chapter 3, in the first part of verse 6, the Bible says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat. Now we'll come back to this verse in just a moment to see the end of it. Simply to say, sin corrupted God's designed use and purpose for woman. Sin and corruption opened the door of misuse and dislike for God's designed order. And what we find today is a hatred for God's designed order rampant in our culture. I realize over the next two or three points, I'm walking on eggshells. But just so you know the kind of preacher I am, I'm not tiptoeing. The Bible is true, and I have to teach it, even if that makes you mad at me. We note two truths from Eve's sin. First, she sinned, letter A, in ignorance. Here's what the lead-up verses say to that in Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said "Ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said Ye shall not eat of it. Notice the next phrase. This was not found in Genesis chapter 2 as we'll see in just a moment. Neither shall ye touch it. If it's not underlined in your Bible, you should go back there in Genesis 2 and underline it because Eve is adding to the word of God. She either misunderstood what the word of God was, had taught to her incorrectly what the word of God is, or she was going beyond. You know how sometimes as parents we say to our kids, look, don't touch that knife. Hey, don't even don't touch that knife. Don't go near the utensil drawer at all. Right. That's kind of what Eve might be doing here. Lest she die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. He knew he had her, by the way, at this point. He knew that she did not know accurately, 100%, the word of God. For God doth know that the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye, you, ladies, shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Friends, it is Eve's ignorance to God's word that led to her confusion in the garden. You say, that's pretty harsh, Kyle. Listen, it's factual. I'm not saying she was an ignorant woman. I'm saying she was ignorant to the words of God. She was either uneducated or uninformed of them. It is also, by the way, in her ignorance, why God did not assign sin to Eve. She was guilty of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just as Adam was, but her eating was done ignorantly, with improper understanding of what God had actually said, as we just read. By this, I mean either Adam had not clearly explained it to Eve, or Eve did not fully listen there's a lot of truth that I'd like to teach in that particular point but I'll keep moving for this morning. But here's exactly what God said back in Genesis 2 beginning in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, "Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die." Adam knew what that God commanded or that God's command, excuse me, was explicitly don't eat. Why Eve said not even to touch is anyone's guess. But it tells us that she was not fully in the grasp of the clarity of what God's word said. The takeaway is that she mishandled God's actual words. The devil will always get us to sin when we do not clearly know what God's word says. Paul addresses this very issue in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's instructing the young pastor, Timothy, as to the roles of men and women within the local church. Please hear God's word on the matter. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Ooh, that's tough. He says, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence... For Adam was first formed, then Eve, God says. This is my order, not Kyle's order. Not religion's order. Religion even corrupts it. But the right relationship with God is this is the order that he established. And Adam, he says, was not deceived, but the woman being deceived, she was tricked. Adam was not. She was in the transgression." Eve sinned in ignorance, but that letter B, that sin led to insolence. The word insolence means disregard, open hostility or hatred to that which is in authority over us. Genesis chapter 3 is a picture of insolence. Insolence, I should say. The feminist revolution... In the modern world, and I don't just say America anymore, is the direct fulfillment of God's foreknowledge on what a woman in the curse, in the fallen state, would want. The desire is that they would be in charge. Listen, I know what my husband said, but I'm the one that's the boss around here. It's like the old argument from a woman to the pastor in the church. My husband may be the head, but I'm the neck that turns the head in our house. Good luck. Happy Mother's Day. By the way, God was not surprised that this was the way it would go. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, when the curse is being meted out, in other words, the punishment for the sin. Here's what God said unto the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow, notice, and thy conception. Sometimes we just assume the sorrow is linked with the conception. I can tell you, having... Been with my wife through three boys being born. There's a lot of sorrow in the conception, but here it says in thy sorrow and thy conception. There's a truth in this. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Have you ever wondered why that last statement is in that verse right there? Thy desire shall be to thy husband. is literally God saying in the curse, listen ladies, I'm gonna curse you that you're gonna really want your man. Is that what he's saying in the curse, go back to it, Cody, keep it up there for a second. Is that what God's telling us? Well, I'm going to really desire him. Oh, I'm sure Jessica walked around, oh that Kyle. I just can't live without that Kyle. <laughs> is that what the curse I mean, she was cursed with that. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, maybe that is the curse. Is that what it means? No, in fact, in the Hebrew phrase at the end of that verse, the idea of will be is an understood participle that is there. In other words, there is no verb form in the original Hebrew phrase. What does that mean to us? It simply means to us that the wife or the woman in this instance would want the God-given ordained position that he chose to give to the sex of male. The female would want that. You will long for that. You will know that you're better than him in that. This is part of the curse. And God says, even though you may know that, and even though you're probably right in some instances, the man's going to have the authority over you. Oh, how archaic. Oh, I can't believe I came to this caveman church today. I must really love my mother. Don't worry, come back on Father's Day because the problem is that mindset exists because men aren't fulfilling their role as they ought to either. Right. I often have said I wish Father's Day was before Mother's Day. Nobody in the government has ever listened to me to flip those. <laughs> but it's a truth. What God is effectively saying, thank you, Cody, you can move on, He's saying here, you will desire your husband's position, but he will have the authoritative role over you. He will exercise the decision-making positions in your life if you are married to him. Again, these are God's words, not mine, which, by the way, makes them true. And the only way for a home to function correctly, it is in the curse that the proper mutual interdependency of a man and a woman in their perfection that the curse, because of sin, now the battle of the sexes had begun. Whereas before the fall, they were completely content in God's designed order. And now in the curse, God is warning the ladies, particularly to the men. He gives us no warning. He just says, go out and work, and it's going to be real hard for the rest of your life. It's going to stink. Men, come back on Father's Day. If you complain about your job, don't come. Because if you don't work, you don't eat. But to the woman, he said, listen, you're going to know in almost every decision, man, Kyle could have done it differently, or my husband could have done it differently, or that man could have done it differently. And yet God has ordained in that, and it's part of the curse. Not that you're right and they're wrong, but it's that God has positioned you in such a way. By the way, it's why everyone wants to change their genders today. They don't like God's created order. And by the way, we often look at them on the television in all of these terrible shows that they put on seemingly for children and say, what freaks they are. And I say to you, if you don't follow the word of God, you're heading down a similar path. You may not be at the end of it like they are, but you're still throwing off God's order. In this battle of the sexes, men would become increasingly harsh, cruel, unloving, and selfish, while women would become manipulative, controlling, and contentious. Here's what Solomon said, and he should know a thing or two about women with his 999 wives and concubines. He said this in Proverbs 21 and verse 18. It is better to dwell in the wilderness, literally out in no man's land, than with a contentious and an angry woman. There's no argument. That women are fantastic leaders. That's not what I'm saying today. And likely in some areas have better qualities for key areas of leadership than men do. But God's designed order is that the man provide and the woman support in a help meet role for those deficiencies. Why would God make this a part of the curse? And the answer can be found back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. And the Bible there said, "...when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat." And notice what it says. "...and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat." Adam said, all right, Eve, you're now in control. I'm following your leadership. I know what God has said, but you have done this, and I'm going to listen to you. You're leading. And this is what it resulted in. God's curse is in direct proportional response to the sin itself. In her created being, a woman was an equal sex with unique significance. In her corrupted being, she sinned in ignorance, Which led to insolence. But number three this morning, and this is where we finally turn happy a woman is a chosen being. By chosen, I simply mean that God has a plan and a purpose for every woman, just as He does for every man. A woman is a chosen being first in her salvation. First Timothy 2 and verse 15, the Bible says this, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity, holiness and sobriety. That is at the very end of that first passage where the woman were told within the church to learn in silence. Here in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 15, he is telling us that a woman is saved by faith, which produces in her charity, holiness and sobriety. In other words, trusting Christ, a woman's soul is redeemed through her faith by His grace. Her spirit is renewed by being controlled, that's sobriety. By love, that's charity. Living as God lives, that's holiness. The only area, he says, the notwithstanding at the very beginning of that verse, the only area in which a woman cannot be exempted from the curse in Christ is how? Childbearing. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Apparently, some of the young Christians who were getting saved were thinking, especially ladies, hey, hallelujah, it's not going to hurt to have kids anymore. And he said, no, 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 notwithstanding, it's still going to hurt to have a baby. That's the physical curse. But in the emotional and spiritual realm, Christ is your sufficiency. But he's not going to take away the pain in childbirth. Salvation in Jesus Christ, Paul states, takes away all of the other areas of weakness or sin, parts of the curse, but it does not take away the pain in childbirth. And all God's mothers said, amen. I've never had a child. I don't know what that pain is like. Ladies, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He has offered you salvation in and through Jesus Christ alone. It is in salvation that a woman can understand she is chosen. You say, well, it doesn't make us any different than a man. No, but that salvation, even in the writing of the Holy Scriptures, Paul tells us has significance for you because it exempts you from the curse and the curse separates you from God. But let her be its interstation. She's a chosen being in her station. What place has God put you into? What home? What husband? What children? What life? Peter, when he was writing, he was writing to husbands and wives in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. He says this to the husbands likewise just one verse to the husband, six to the ladies. He says in verse 7, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them, that's your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that is salvation, that your prayers be not hindered. Oh man, somewhere a feminist head just exploded. Might happen in here. This is one of those times where if you really do have to go to the restroom and you're a lady, you're like, I can't go now. You'll think I'm mad at him. Pastor, did you just say that a woman is a weaker vessel? I did. Before you do get up and storm out, let's consider the phrase. What he's talking about is the value of womanhood. Today, we have our family coming over. I'm smoking a brisket this afternoon, eating around 5.30, 6 o'clock tonight with my mother, my mother-in-law, and their husbands, and my, my wife, the mother of my kids. And as we eat together, we are going to put our dollar silverware out that we got at the Dollar Tree. Yes, all of you that come to our house, my wife is very frugal. She bought all of our dishes from the Dollar Tree. You too can shop thrifty. If you sit at our our dining room table, there is a beautiful cabinet that one of our church ladies fixed up and it looks fantastic. I think she had her husband help a little bit. Maybe Jolie did, I don't know. But the point is it looks beautiful. And inside of that cabinet that Jolie fixed up for us is all of some great aunts of mine's china. Oh, it is fine. Do you know why we don't feed all of you that come to our house on that china? It's the weaker vessel. Can can I tell you something? If you come to our house, please don't do this. But if you came to my house and you were served dinner on our dollar plate and you got up and went all Greek on us and said, Hoopah! And you threw it on the floor and it shattered. Would I care? I mean, I might look at you like you're crazy for a second and then go, "Ah, Okay, hoopah! But Would I care? And the answer is, I mean, outside of thinking I'm nuts for a second, no, you wouldn't care. But if you went to my china cabinet and you opened that china cabinet and you started going hoopah, and throwing down our priceless china, what would I say to you? I'd say, hey, man, you have lost your living mind. Get out of my house. Why? Because that has higher value to me. It's a weaker vessel. That's what the phrase here means. It has great worth To me, Men, your prayers are hindered if you do not recognize the honorable position that the woman, wife, and mother in your life rightly should have. He finishes that verse by saying that your prayers be not hindered. You want to be a godly man? Then treat your woman the right way. Our country's in the shape it's in because men do not treat women in the appropriate way they should within the station of life that God has given to them. If you're a single woman in here this morning, be glad that God has made you that. thus. Younger or older, a godly woman living in a godly way in autonomy will demonstrate God's grace and goodness to all who observe her. If you're a married woman, be grateful for the man that God has provided for you. I pray that he provides you for you so that you might be enabled to help meet his God-designed needs and purpose in life. For the two of you, encourage your husband, nourish your husband, and above all, support your husband. Pastor, what if my husband's an unbeliever? Peter has an answer to that in 1 Peter 3. He says in verse 1, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, not to somebody else's, you, no, not, not to another man, to your own man, your own husband, that if any obey, that's any of your husbands, obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of you women. That's the impact you have. While they behold your chaste or reserved lifestyle conversation, coupled with fear, that is respect, God says that a godly woman who is a wife of an ungodly man may be able to win them to Christ without even opening the Bible to preach at them. That's the value of who you are. If you're a mother here this morning, rejoice in the fullness of womanhood that God has blessed you with. Children are indeed an heritage Of the Lord. That is a woman. And you say, but there's one more point. Yes, this is for the men and the boys here today. Number four, she should be a cherished being. God certainly loves her. Ooh, it's a white screen. That's maybe apropos where most of the guys' heads are right now. You can just go black if we don't have any. To cherish means to highly value something. King Lemuel's mother, back in Proverbs 31, is the one telling her son what a godly woman is, what a virtuous woman is. In Proverbs 31, in verse 10, he says, Who can find a virtuous woman, for her price is far above rubies. We should cherish a woman first, letter A, men and boys, as a mate. As a wife. I needed an M. Mate seems to work. By this, I mean companion, one who matches with you as God has designed. Solomon said this in Proverbs 18 and verse 22 Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. That phrase, obtaineth favor, is the idea that you continually get God's grace in your life. Man, that's amazing. Men, do you look at your wife as God's continual gift of grace to you? You should. If you have found a wife, men, you have obtained and continue to obtain God's grace in the form of that woman. Listen to King Lemuel's motherly advice, his mom's advice to him, of the kind of woman he should look to find. Her integrity is on display as we read in verses 10 through 12. Her industry is on display in verses 13 through 15. Again in verses 16 and 18 and 19. In verses 21 and 22 and 24. She is an industrious woman. Men, if you married a woman so she might sit home barefoot and pregnant, that is not biblical. Half of you agreed and half of you were shocked. And the other half of you are still trying to figure out which of the other two halves are. Ladies, you're not supposed to sit at home eating bonbons. I've never enjoyed a bonbon, but I also am not a lady. You're supposed to be industrious. She works well with her hands. That's a good thing. In verses 20 and 27, we find her ideals. What motivates her? She looketh well to the ways of her house, verse 20, in verse, or verse 27. In verse 20, she stretcheth out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She has a, an idealistic view of the world. Men, you should trust the wife that God has given to you. As she looks at the world, don't bulldoze her ideas. Listen to her ideas. God's given her to you for a reason. Her intelligence is on display in verses 16, 18, and verse 26. Especially verse 26, she openeth her mouth with wisdom. And her tongue is the law of kindness. The other two verses tell us that she perceiveth things. In other words, she's able to rationally think. Her integrity, her industry, her ideals, her intelligence, and finally her identity. Her identity is not wrapped up in who people think she is. That's the problem, ladies, by the way. Just as an aside to you in this last point. You walk around in today's world and you are told... You need to let the world know who you are. This woman didn't care if the world knew who she was. It doesn't ever say that she went around saying, hey, I know her. Now, everybody seemed to know her. Her husband was well treated within the gates of the city. Why? Because they recognized the kind of woman he was married to was far better than he was. (laughs) Her identity was not wrapped up in herself. Or self-worth. You know, the Bible never tells us anything about self-worth. Our worth comes from Christ, male or female. The only response, men, that you can give to a woman such as this is found in Proverbs 31 and verse 31. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Praise her, treat her like the queen that she rightfully is. The final point this morning, let her be, is as a mother. She should be cherished as a mom. I found this fun fact on the internet. Let's put it up there. As of 9 a.m. this morning, the world population is 8 billion, 50 million, 29,385. Of that population, 8 billion, 50 million, 29,385 are born of a woman. And to my knowledge, zero went through the entire process of conception to delivery, were a man. Zero. And what does Proverbs thirty one tell us? It says, She looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of her idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed. Oh, I hope today you've told your mother how blessed they are, or you intend to tell your mother how blessed they are. Her husband also, and he praiseth her, many daughters have done virtuously, but thou... In other words, it seems like Mrs. Mama Lemuel was telling her son, when you find that woman, you make sure she understands her high value to you. If you've not told your mothers this morning that you love her, do so. I don't care about the strains in relationships. She bore you into this world and suffered the curse to ensure your existence. And There's no more noble thing that a woman can do. In closing, I wanted to give this stat from the Guinness Book of World Record. It gives us certainly a mother to consider, and perhaps a man as well, the St. Petersburg Panorama received a report on February 27th of 1782 from the Nikoliski Monastery. The government in Moscow had received from them a report or a record that a peasant of the Shuya district, Fedor Vasiliev by name, had married twice in his life and by those two women had 87 children. Yeah, I got your attention real quick. His first wife, in 27 confinement, gave birth to 16 pairs of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. Ha! That is 69 children. Ha! I think that's a full quiver. I think that qualifies right there. Moms, you should go home and think about that. His second wife, in eight confinements, gave birth to six pairs of twins and two sets of triplets. That's remarkable in itself, but I mean, when you're compared to lady number one, you're a loser. (laughs) I think the funniest line that we should take away from that news article and that Guinness World Record might be found in the way they identify Mr. Vasiliev. First, it says, he, at 75, was in good health. It says nothing of the two ladies. I'm sure he was in good health, by the way. A lot of kids. You know the second thing that I took away from that? He was a peasant. Seems about right. I got three kids, and I can tell you that the bank is empty. (laughs) Seems divine. I'm getting in trouble all over the place here. To our mothers this morning, happy Mother's Day. To every woman here, embrace and rejoice in the fact that God has made you a woman. To each of us here this morning, be glad that Jesus Christ redeems us and helps us to understand clearly His plan, His purpose, and His designed order for all of us. Before I close in prayer, I'd like to find out who won our little competition this morning. Then I'm going to pray. The Atkins family has come this morning. What a great